Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, your host for the Future of Higher Education and the president of Chatham University. I'm honored to be here today with Bob Fisher, who has just stepped down as the president of Belmont University, and we'll be talking with him about his very successful tenure there over the last two decades. Bob, welcome to the podcast, and if if you could, to start, I'd love if you'd share a little bit about your own uh, childhood and your educational background. Well, thanks, David. Uh, it's great to be with you. Um, I grew up uh, in a home where my dad was a teacher and my mom was a teacher. So um, we uh, pretty education was always important in our home and uh, had two sisters who did really well in school, which put a lot of pressure on <laughs> me. So I, I had to take it more seriously than I wanted to as a, as a boy. Um, I went to uh, public schools mm-hmm. as a uh, K through 12 guy, actually no K, but first through 12th grade and then public universities mm-hmm. uh, all the way through uh, undergraduate at Henderson State in Arkansas and uh, MBA at the University of Memphis and a PhD in economics and management at the University of Arkansas. And I just went straight through uh, I had intended to be a, uh, a manager of a, I started out in the Goodyear store manager training program. And uh, first day they threw me a uniform and put me out in the bay changing tires there in Memphis in the summer. And I decided I wanted an indoor job. So, uh, in fact, I heard one of my friends today said his dad told him to try to get a job where you, uh, could uh, shower in the morning instead of the evening. <laughs> and if you think about that, second, yeah. you know, that's kind of good. Uh, that, and so uh, just went straight on and, and got into, became a teacher. Right. And so when you, what was it that led you to decide the academic route uh, in looking for an indoor job? What, what, what led you to the PhD there and, and then to, to academia? Well, uh, I maintained an intense interest in business and economics. Uh, and I, again, I thought that I wanted to run a business. Um, and, and in fact, I ended up actually doing that in, in a university. We'll get to that mm-hmm. later. But um, I, I just thought I'd start climbing that corporate ladder and see what I could do. Uh, but I, I just, uh, just as I was finishing that MBA, it just struck me that uh, I love uh, being at a university, I love uh, learning. I think that's important. And uh, I, I realized how much I admired and respected and appreciated my teachers. And I thought, well, that, that, that would be okay. I think I'll mm-hmm. do that. Uh, and I, I see these students today who come in here, you know, when they're 17 for a tour of campus and they know exactly what they're going to do with their life. And, and many of them go do it. Uh, yeah. I just kind of struggle around and, and 
and ended up, you know, I think God gave me the right path. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and where where in the in your career stage um, did you decide that you might actually want to make the move into administration and perhaps be a, a university president? Well, uh, actually, uh, from the, from the very beginning, I, I thought I love teaching, but I, I maintained that interest in management or leadership, and uh, I, I was involved in in college. I I became uh, the student government president, for example, and was. It really enjoyed the opportunity to lead, and uh, even the responsibility side of it felt pretty mm-hmm. good to me. So um, I, I, I had that in the back of my mind all, all along, but my first goal was to, to be a great teacher, and mm-hmm. I went through the professorial ranks as an instructor, uh, assistant professor, associate, and full professor. When I was, mm-hmm. when I was 34, I was a full wow. professor. And, and then at that point, I, I'm, I'm just so goal-oriented, and, and it's really just kind of silly to think this way, but I thought, okay, what's next? Mm-hmm. And that's when I thought, well, okay, how about this administration thing? And I became a dean uh, at 38, and mm-hmm. um, but then stuck with that for 10 years or 12 mm-hmm. years to get the school accredited, and then a vice president at Arkansas State. And then on to Belmont in mm-hmm. the year two thousand. Um, and when I, you when you came to Belmont, were, had you looked at other presidencies before then, or how, how did that particular opportunity come up? Yeah, I, I hadn't looked seriously. Um, I, I I started looking at those ads in the Chronicle. Mm-hmm. They they were all on the last page, yeah. presidents' jobs, and I just kept thinking, "Hey, that looks good. That looks good." And and in fact, when I just to quickly regress, I. When I was a college student, as a student government leader, our president passed away that year, and oh. we recruited a new president. And I was on the presidential search team as a student mm-hmm. representative. And when I saw that, I thought, "Boy, that's that's really what I want to do." Huh. But I never even said it out loud, you know. Yeah. But uh, one of my there was a, a gentleman, Dr. Dan Grant at Washington Baptist, who was across town from me at Henderson State at the time. And he, I said, Dr. Grant, and he was president. I said, Dr. Grant, how do you get to be a college president? And he said, well, you go, you get your PhD, you go through all the professorial ranks, you get your research done, you try to get some kind of something like a Fulbright scholar. uh, And then you get an administrative job and you become a dean and then you become a vice president. And then you go stand up on a mountain and you hold your hand up (laughs) and hope you get struck by lightning. And I said, wow. It it was sounding pretty smooth until that last step. Well, well, the last step I knew I could do. (laughs) So, so anyway, uh, that's when, you know, when when I really uh, began to pursue it. Uh, I, when I went to Arkansas State, uh, Dr. Les Wyatt was president there. And Les is one of the most, five most important people to me in my life. Um, and we only worked together four years, but he, I learned so much from him. And he was such a, such a great mentor and such a great leader. Um, and one day he called me into his office and handed me a, a le- copy of a letter that he had sent to the search committee at Belmont. And I'd only hmm. been there three and a half years. Wow, and, and and I looked at the letter and I said, "Well, thank you for this. 
I think. Is everything okay? <laughs> You're trying to get rid of me? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he said, yeah. no, it's great, Bob. I, I, I love the work you do and I appreciate it. But this may be too good for you to pass up. This mm-hmm. may be what you want to do. And he had to recommend, he'd already sent the letter, uh, wow. recommending me for the job. And, um, and, and, you know, again, that's why I so admire him. He, he, he saw it long before I did because I didn't, I, I don't, if I'd seen that ad, I wouldn't have applied. Mm-hmm. And so obviously the letter had the intended effect. It interested the search committee. What was that search process like? And when you, what was it about Belmont that attracted you? Well, uh, you know, having just retired and just come off a, uh, a, a, a evening with 400 of my closest friends uh, where they showed these videos and all this kind of thing. Uh, and the board chair told this story. So I guess it's okay to tell a story because uh, we came over and they sent me a copy of the strategic plan. We came over here. My wife and I did. Uh, I was in, at that point. It was just me in the interview. But in the interview, I said, "I have a copy of your strategic plan here." At the time, Belmont had twenty nine hundred students, mm-hmm. and and uh, you say in here that you never want to be larger than three thousand students. <laughs> that that's your cap. And they said, "Well, right." Uh, and I said, "Well, then I'm not your guy." <laughs> and they said, "Well, tell me why you." you I said, I'm not a maintenance engineer. I'm a, I'm an architect. I'm a builder. That's what I want. I want to build something. And, uh, and, and that sounds pretty arrogant, but it, at that point, again, I didn't think I really was that interested anyway, but I wanted to, I was doing a lot of management consulting. I thought I'll help these guys understand. Uh, Belmont had all these professional programs in um, music, music business, occupational therapy, physical therapy, uh, nursing, uh, business, MBA, all of those, still 2,900 students. Belmont could call itself a liberal arts college, but it really wasn't. It was a liberal arts core school, and we still are, by the way. That's really important. Uh, But with all these strong professional programs, that, that was... And I said, you can't be, you can be an amazing liberal arts college of 3,000. You can't. And I know several I can mm-hmm. name today. But I, you can't be great at that size. The scale is not right. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, okay, um, how big do you think we need to be? And, and, and I'm very just kind of naively said, 4,000. <laughs> um, and uh, they said, huh, okay. And then they invited me back and and I'll tell shorten the story because my wife always says nobody cares about this, Bob. No, I care. Well, well that's I, what this is about. But you better be careful. You don't care too much because search committee stories can go on yeah. and on and on. But but then we came back and, and Judy was a part of the interview process and and we were on the the search firm uh, head called me and said they're going to make the offer tomorrow. And I said, uh, tell them not to do that. Uh, don't do that. I mean, and I, I haven't told this story publicly mm-hmm. you know, before, but since it was told to you know, mm-hmm. a lot of folks the other day. And tell them not to do it. I'm not the right guy. 
uh, and uh, but they kept they kept coming and uh, and I wrote them a letter and just said the first person you offer this job to should be the next president of Belmont. That's the way it needs to work. They don't need to be your second choice, and I'm not that first choice. And you know, two months later, here they come again. You know, the, the search consultant and says, just go, just go back one more time. And and we did. And and I won't go too deep into it, but. We just felt at that time, I guess I went over and visited with Bill Trout, who had been president of Belmont for 17 years and had moved to uh, Rhodes in Memphis and spent half a day with him. And he helped me to see Belmont. And it, and it, it was 2,900 students, small, but it was so big into the quality improvement movement. It won national awards for Deming's application of Deming's principles there was it was just really it wasn't your typical church school and, <laughs> and and my faith is so important to me but I'm an economist and I, I wouldn't yeah. fit in, in a lot of those other settings and, and he helped me see it and uh, and we we took the opportunity the search consultant said you go to Belmont Bob and Four or five years, you do a good job. I'll get you a big time job. Uh, well, and, and by the way, I had just uh, applied for another job at a pretty large state school mm-hmm. and uh, fifteen thousand students, and I was mm-hmm. one of the five finalists for that. Okay. He said, "You're going to get interviewed for that job, Bob, but you're not going to get it. Mm-hmm. You go to Belmont, right? Do a good job. I'll get you a big time job." And sure enough. Four years later, he calls and he says, Bob, this is John. I, I got, remember what I said? I said, I do. He said, I got one for you. I said, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> he said, what do you mean? I said, do not say the school. I don't want to ever know who you're talking about. He said, well, you should at least know. I said, no, <laughs> I have a big time job. Because by that time, we'd gone from 2,900 to 3,100, 3,300. 3,700 to 3,900, and we were we were doing stuff, and it was so much fun to be a part of that, and that was just the start. Yeah, and and I'd love it if you could talk a little more about that start, because as you said, the, the plan that they'd laid out envisaged almost no growth, and right. so here, here you are adding 1,000 students in that first five years. W- what was it you did when you got there in terms of building both the board and the leadership team support for this vision of growth and and in building your team did you have what what you inherited did you bring in folks yourself just talk us to about that sort of initial strategic plan well yeah and first of all the leadership team uh, that that I inherited was exceptional there were a couple of changes that happened in the first two years but not the four of those people, five of those people are still at Belmont today as vice wow. presidents. I mean, and, and two of them went on to be college presidents. And, and, and so that I, Bill Trout had done an amazing job assembling a great, great team. Um, I, I, uh, having, I had a huge advantage, I think, in that I had taught uh, business strategy. I had taught microeconomic theory. Uh, I, I taught uh, organizational behavior. Now, I hadn't done it that much. 
but I understood what marginal cost and marginal revenues are and what the difference in the slope of those two lines can mean for you over time and how you can transform an organization. And I'd read Michael Porter's uh, Why Transformational Change uh, Efforts Fail article in the Harvard Business Review, and I'd read um, uh, John, uh, uh, no, that's John Cotter's article. Mm. Harvard Business Review, and I'd read Michael, I'd taught out of Michael Porter's competitive strategies book. Yeah. And and I, I have to say this to all the university uh, folks that are watching this, uh, it is competitive. Don't pretend, <laughs> don't try to pretend it's not. It's, it's highly competitive. And you have, and I uh, used the knowledge that, and I'd read, uh, when I first got to Belmont, I made some plenty of mistakes and I, but I said in a faculty meeting, I think I've come to a really, really good place and a good school, but not a great school. <laughs> and the whole room just went blank, you know, and that was rude of me. And that if I had that to do over, I wouldn't say it that way. But on Christmas that year, that my gift from my wife was Jim Collins. Good to, <laughs> good to great. Yeah. And she said, read this. I think he says the same thing you're trying to say, but he's a lot nicer about it. <laughs> and, and so I did. And, um, and, and so we, we made that commitment. And my, my friend Bo Thomas and I had written a book on team leadership and real dream teams where we interviewed a lot of great team leaders. And, and, and having done that, I, I had the, the knowledge, but I had to go to work finding out what is our strategy. And we picked a, a strategy. We knew we need, I knew, I thought we needed to grow. How do you grow? Well, th there was another book, The Alchemy of Growth, which we, our leadership team read together. And, and there are lots of different ways to grow any organization, but we decided we're going to, we're going to create new products. And, uh, Again, most most faculty senates would cringe at the way I'm talking about mm. this. Like we're not a business. Uh, yes, you. Are. <laughs> yes, we are. Uh, yeah. But uh, we decided let's pick out some new new majors, some new programs. And over the years, we've just added. Most of our growth has come from new programs. I mean, mm -hmm. we've come from 2,900. And by the way, this fall enrollment is looks like it's going to be freshmen up 16 percent over last year but even eight percent over where it would have been without a yeah. COVID year uh, so the growth is, is still coming mm -hmm. uh, but we've added architecture we've added pharmacy we vastly expanded our nursing program mm -hmm. we're adding a college of medicine right now that will produce medical doctors uh, we're uh, we've expanded our music business program, which by the way, is the goose that plays all the golden eggs or did mm. for so many years here. It was, Belmont had maybe the very first music business program back mm. in seventies, eighties. And, uh, that program enrolls about 2,500 students now, almost as many as we had uh, early on, but it, but it now gives them a chance to do audio engineering or event, uh, my, my, my favorite is live event management, which is also known as being a, a roadie. But, right. But it's not being a roadie. When I found out what it takes to get Garth Brooks' tour done in Europe, 
uh, it's it's but that's what our students are preparing for. And now, did did you say twenty five hundred students? Twenty five hundred uh-huh, of our eight thousand students, and over and then another thousand are in the College of Music. Uh, wow. So music is a huge deal to Belmont. But that's yeah. part of our strategy. We looked, yeah. I looked around and said, where are we? Yeah. Uh, you're in Music City, USA. Yeah. Well, well, let's take advantage of that. And, and we have, um, uh, we, we own three studios, two of them down on Music Row. Uh, music studios are not dead. <laughs> We're mm-hmm. still, uh, I bet everybody from Larry Mullins, the drummer in U2, to uh, Bob Seeger, to you, know, you mm-hmm. just go down the list uh, of people that come to our studios to record. Um, but that, again, to, to focus my, my point, uh, our strategy was based on what can we do that gives, and, and it's kind of taking the good to great principles, what can we right. do where we can be one of the best in the world at it? Right. I don't, I'm not quite so... Uh, arrogant to say we are the best in the world, mm. but we're one of the best in the world. And, well, and you've got to be the biggest. I can't imagine anyone else has 2,500 students doing music business. That's yeah, no, I, I, I don't think so. But what's interesting is we are, uh, is getting more competitive because yeah. there are more. We, we, we started out helping some schools get going around us. <laughs> and now they're Not doing so much. Yeah. <laughs> but, but we're still enrolling as many as our facilities will, yep. will handle. But but when we look strategically at, at who we are, where we are in Nashville, Tennessee, the two things are music, which we just talked about, and the other is healthcare. And healthcare is actually much bigger deal sure. wise here than music is even. I mean, yep. seven times as much uh, many jobs. Yep, and so we we expanded our healthcare programs, and that's where we came up with adding the Med- College of Medicine mm-hmm. and pharmacy uh, pharmacy program. So uh, again, that's a I, I've even at this point uh, you need to ask another question. <laughs> sure. Well, <laughs> what, what I'd like to talk about is you know building on your your economic and business background. When when I look at the Belmont story and all of the success you've had, to me the the most unusual piece about it is when you look at the budget. It's not like something I've seen at any other, you know, uh, top university in the country. If I read your latest budget correctly, out of a three hundred fifty million dollar budget, you're generating an eighty two million dollar surplus, and so you know you came in. There wasn't much of an endowment at Belmont when you got there, and a lot of other universities with you know endowments in the multiple billions, they still figure out their budgets are break even or close every year, right? Because yeah. they're you know they they figure out ways to spend the money. How, how what was it that underlay the success, and and how is the budget structure so that you're you're generating a surplus like that? Well, that goes back to my dad teaching me how to take care of my money. I mean, and, and I'm not I'm not so much kidding about that. My dad really taught me so much about it. He became a hospital administrator. And at one point in his career, and I watched him take a losing hospital and turn it into a very thriving going operation. 
and and honestly, I, I kept that in my mind, and I keep I keep this reminder. He he had this on his desk facing him. He had this this little press on. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and, and not, not there's his name, but the message to himself. And, and and I will tell you that that's the secret. It's being relentless. It's it's being disciplined. Uh, it's it's being the first year I was there, we lost two hundred and fifty thousand mm. dollars, and we and that's after we cut the budget five percent mm. because the enrollment target got missed the the, the summer before. Yep. And my message to the faculty and staff was, "Help me grow this place, and and I promise you'll prosper with it." And and by you know more than by the way we've gone from the thirty fifth percentile in our pay for our professor, our professorial ranks to the eighty fifth in our peer group. Mm-hmm. Belmont has had a five percent raise every single year for twenty one years. Oh my goodness! It, except for one year we went six percent the first year, and and that's it's totally transformed what we're able to do with the faculty. And and so the what we what we understood though, and that goes back to C. C. W. Ferguson, who wrote my microeconomics book <laughs> that I studied in my PhD program, is is the sure your costs are going to go up over time. Figure a way for your revenues to go up, and then figure out a slope for the cost curve, and figure out a slope for the revenue curve, and stick with it. Don't, don't, when times get good, do not change it. Do not change it. And, and we literally did that. We figured out the slope of our, we're going to, we're going to spend more money every year. And that's what, when we invested most of it early on in faculty, but, but the areas between the curves, we spent on construction or we spent it on uh, investing in the endowment. And that number went from a loss of 250 to the next year revenue. A, a net income is five hundred thousand, then a million, then two, then six, then twelve, and and again, as you say, uh, last year was a uh, this coming year the projections is are going to put it right at a hundred million dollars, uh, and that's money to invest in building a place, building a, a machine <laughs> that generates uh, success and. And, and, you know, I'll never forget, uh, I say I'll never forget, now I'm, I'm searching my memory. I think, yeah. it, I think it was uh, uh, John McConnell, who was the CEO of Worthington Industries, and he was talking on a Tom Peters video years ago. And, and Peters was asking him for the secrets to success at Worthington Industries, which was one of his in search of excellence company. And, and one of the things he said, he, he laid out a strategy and Peter says, are you worried that you're, uh, somebody else is going to uh, copy your strategy? And he said, I'm not worried about that because everybody already knows what they need to do to be successful like this. They just don't have the will to do it. Mm. Think about that. I mean, that is powerful. They just don't have the will. I mean, I know how to lose weight, mm. but do I have the will to do mm-hmm. it? You know, I know how. 
I know what a university needs to do to become financially sustainable, mm-hmm. but but can we stay on track and not get out of right. control and not get lazy mm-hmm. and not get sloppy? And I'm curious, as you sort of formulate the budget with the leadership team and with the board and thinking about that, how do you think about, you know, one of the things I'll I'll come back to is you you've invested a, an amazing amount over a billion dollars in in construction during your your tenure. But how do you think about the balance of what do we what do we need to charge? You know what do we generate, and then how do we use those funds in terms of you're only drawing a very small percent from the endowment for the operations. And so how, how do you think about sort of building for future generations, construction? It's amazing to hear you're investing, you know, five or 6% per year in faculty. That's, you know, would be the envy, I think, of almost every university in the country during this period. So I, I'm just curious how, you you know, you think about all of those those elements and, and things like financial aid for students, right? what you do on the giving back side. Yeah, and, and that's that's the whole fun of being a university president or administrator. Um, you got to do it all. <laughs> you can't just focus on one part of it. But, but the, the base strategy was, let's build some amazing facilities that will attract students and their parents, by the way, uh, because the parents are, I, I believe, really more responsible for the decision than we give them credit for. Uh, mm-hmm. But how can we let's build those facilities and then get those students here and, and then reinvest and reinvest and reinvest in those facilities? And, and when, I, when I was being uh, recruited for this job, I was told Belmont needs a new uh, place to play basketball in a student life center. And I said, well, how much do you think that's going to be? And the answer was about 12 to $15 million. Well, then I come on board and I find out if we build what, what I envision we need, it's $55 million. And, and that was a huge stretch for us. That's back when we had a budget of about $32 million for the whole operation, $34. Yep. And and who's going to give us any credit and who's going to invest the money? But we found $25 million in the community uh, from donors that invested. And we found a bank that was willing to partner with us and believed in our future. Mm-hmm. And, and they're still our bank, let me say that. Yeah. <laughs> Other people want to be our bank now. Nobody else mm-hmm. did then. Um, but we built that facility, the Curb Events Center, and it's seats 5,000 students and the student life center and mm-hmm. all, lots of neat offices and all these kinds of things. And yet it had the climbing wall and the racquetball mm-hmm. courts and all the country club things that, that we kind of think, why do we have to do that? Well, mm-hmm. because somebody else, because it's, because it's competitive. That's why mm-hmm. we have to do it. And uh, that got us started on the, on the process and the enrollment starts starts going and but we I remember when that ha- happened <clears throat> excuse me when that happened uh, as we were maybe I'd been there a year or two my wife Judy who is absolutely 
she she introduces herself as a failed or unsuccessful executive coach. <laughs> but but I listen a lot more than she thinks I do, and I'm saying, "Come on, you got to give me a little credit." Uh, but uh, Judy, who's just been by my side every step yeah. of the way and has such valuable uh, insights, uh, I told Judy, uh, you know. I look around this place and I look around and see where Nashville's going. And uh, if I, if we just had a billion dollars is what it would take to make this a great university. And I honestly, <laughs> we hit a billion last year. And yeah. uh, I'm not saying we're a great university. I'm, I'm saying uh, with Dr. Jones as our new leader, uh, same same quote I had in my inaugural speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, he should say, "You ain't seen nothing yet." Uh, yep. The Bob Turner Overdrive boys, you know, um, because uh, uh, I, I just see so much more potential for us even in the future. And and, and let me say this about Nashville, Tennessee: mm. there could not be a better place in the world to be as a university. I, kids want to come here. Yep. Uh, Kids from Seattle, Washington want to come here. Of course, the, a lot of them want to come for the music, and they do. But then their sister comes to visit with them, and she comes for nursing. Because mm-hmm. uh, Nashville is a happening place. Yep. And and you've made being Nashville's university really central in the strategic plan. Can you talk about how – because – I, I, obviously, there's there's a big synergy there. You know, we're at Chatham. We're based in Pittsburgh. We talk about it as an Eds and Med city, and you know, we feel like the resurgence of the city and the resurgence of the universities has been a, a really core part of that story. How have you gone about? I know some of your your buildings were active partnerships with parts of the city. What have the synergies been like between Belmont's rise and Nashville's rise? Well, it's 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 just. Uh, I, I believe uh, if we were uh, just name another another place, I don't want to make any other city mad, <laughs> but it, you just couldn't do what we've done most places. Uh, for example, I my dream, uh, my very last dream for, for Belmont for my leadership was I want to start a medical school. I wanted, I wanted a law school, and we got it. And it's a great. It's already doing so well, and and. We just go down the list of the things, that, but a medical school, and I wanted uh, to be a school that produced uh, MDs, and I just kept getting stumped. It, it's really hard to start a new yeah. medical college, and um, and we've got a great one right across the street at Vanderbilt, and there's another great one at Meharry Medical. We already have two medical colleges in town, and but the, but MDs are not. It's not like we just provide for Nashville. It, the need sure. is, is yeah. great for the world. So, but I started finally. I just this fall said I'm going to take one more stab at this and set up a meeting with uh, Sam Hazen, who's the chairman and CEO at uh, 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 Hospital Corporation. <coughs> excuse me, excuse me, Hospital Corporation of America, the largest hospital company mm. in the world. <laughs> right over down the street, about eight-minute drive from here. And and I had my proposal because the, stump, the place I kept getting stumped is where do they do residencies and where do they do their, their clinical 
hospitals because the hospitals in Nashville I hadn't really thought of HCA as a teaching hospital, yep. but I learned they are. Mm. Uh, and I sat down with Sam and I started through my presentation and I got to about page two of eight. And he said, we wondered when you would come ask. <laughs> and I looked at uh, the chairman of our board who was with me and I said, should I keep going? He said, no, stop. <laughs> and, and they committed to provide those residencies and those clinical sites. And, and, and I'm telling you, that just can't happen if you're not, if they weren't our partner. Um, and so those kind of partnerships, they helped us. They invested big time in our nursing expansion uh, mm-hmm. 12 years ago. Um, and we've, we've had lots of great partnerships uh, throughout the city. And, and as we, the, the latest explosion here is tech jobs, uh, information technology jobs. And mm-hmm. the, with Amazon making Nashville sort of a sub, I, I don't know how to describe it. We're not that other headquarters, but, yep. but they're bringing thousands and thousands of jobs. And Oracle just announced uh, they're bringing 8,000 jobs <laughs> to Nashville. And so what are we doing? Our college of business is, is really ramping up our, our data analysis mm-hmm. and our, 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 pro, our programs that will support those industries and, and we'll be ready. I think we'll, we'll see. Uh, uh, they're going to ramp up, but just as we're ramping up. So, so that's Nashville has been so good to us mm. that my, my thought is almost like an individual, not just an organization is, They've been so good to us. What can we do for them? And mm-hmm. and we've tried to do that whenever we can. And we've, we've done some programs with the public schools, for example, mm-hmm. our Bridges to Belmont program, where uh, we we invest about uh, $8 million a year in full-ride scholarships for kids from uh, public schools here in Nashville who otherwise wow. uh, wouldn't have an opportunity. We deliberately picked out the lowest performing schools in our city and said, we're going, you know, if you go to this high school, there's going to be 15 mm. full scholarships to Belmont. If you go to this high school, there's 15 there. And mm. um, we're taking in about 40 uh, a year. Uh, <clears throat> at, and, uh, and those kids are graduating at a higher rate and higher average. And it's just, and, and it's just given us, it's an opportunity to say we will, we, we're helping to transform the city that way. Um, yeah. The stories that come out of that just blow my mind. I mean, the first mm. year, one of the young ladies asked me, didn't ask me, asked one of, uh, another person who was telling me, um, she wants to know, can she bring her sister to live in a room? Mm. And, and the answer is no. I said, no. Well, she wants to know what she's supposed to do with her sister. She's been taking care of her for three years because dad's in prison and they don't know where mom is. And and it's like, oh, my gosh, mm. you know? Yeah. Uh, we just hadn't. It, it's brought us into the real world to understand right. the, the, the lack of uh, a lack of privilege the lack of opportunity so many of our kids have. Uh, 
And so that's just an example of, uh, you know, you just can't take, take, take. You got to give, give, give. And um, as as right before we we started recording for this, we were talking about, you know, some of the disruptions that are happening now in higher ed with the demographics, the, 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 what we're seeing with the reduction in the number of high school grads. And, And I was looking at your 2025 strategic vision. And it was striking to me, obviously, what you've been doing has been working extremely well, but it, but it seemed to reflect a real continuity with the 2020 vision. There wasn't a lot about, you know, all the changes that are happening in higher ed and, and how Belmont's kind of positioning for that. And, and as just one example, I'm curious, a couple of the other transformative things you did over the last few years were the integration of, of the Watkins College of Art and then the O'Moore School of Design. Um, and so, you know, other industries, when they're dealing with disruption, you see a lot of merger and acquisition, right? And consolidation and other things happening. Were, were those things you envisaged in the earlier plan? And are they something as you think about going forward, you know, do you see more of that in Belmont's future? Yeah. Uh, both of those were not uh, sought out. They weren't a part of our strategy. But both of them, it started with O'Moore when the chairman of the board and the president just made an appointment and came to see me and said, we're, we need to uh, find a way to continue our school but we're just too small. The scale's too mm-hmm. small, just a three or 400 students. And, uh, and, and they showed me the financials and exactly. That's what I was telling the search committee years before, yep. you know, the scale is not right, you know, yep. and, and we were able to create that college on our campus, uh, sell their, their campus to pay off their debt. And there was no net. Uh, mm-hmm. transaction, except we got their programs, we got their professors, mm-hmm. and we got their reputation, which is very, yeah. very good. Uh, mm-hmm. th- they have a stellar uh, reputation in interior design, design in general, mm-hmm. fashion design, uh, and art. And and so we, we were able to bring that into the campus. Uh, mm-hmm. And in fact, the former uh, president told me a couple of weeks ago that this this fall there will be more students enrolled in the old more college of design than in the history of the school because they've been on this slow decline for years mm-hmm. and now we just it's skyrocketing because mm-hmm. we didn't have to hire another security card we didn't have to hire another accountant that where they had mm-hmm. two we didn't have to hire it goes back to the microeconomics yep. that sort of acquisition mm-hmm. uh, we uh, we just uh, absorb their benefits without much cost. Um, mm-hmm. This and the same was true of Watkins, but on a larger scale. In that Watkins had a, a few more students. Mm-hmm. Their chairman uh, and vice chairman of the board came to see me and said, "We need. We saw what's happened with them more. Can you do this? Because uh, they, they." I think at peak been about 600 students, but now we're down to 250 or so. Mm-hmm. And, and so we, uh, we worked that deal out and we uh, absorbed those students and we've uh, sold that property for uh, $24 million. Mm-hmm. And that goes, all of that, every dollar 
goes into the scholarship fund, mm-hmm. that endowment goes into our endowment for those students in the Watkins College of Art. Mm-hmm. And you can do a lot of good recruiting with mm-hmm. with uh, almost a million dollars worth of scholarships for a small yep. college every year. And that's what we're doing. And we're going to mm-hmm. build that back up too. So, so what... What's happened, and, and this is, I guess, real important, you can strategize and you can mm-hmm. say, I, I see it, you know, and it's 10 years mm-hmm. out and we're going to have to do, uh, I'm, I'm this great visionary, I see it. Except I think you also got to just roll with it. When, when, you see mm-hmm. an, when you see a chance, take it. Uh, yeah. Steve Winwood, his wife was on our board. <laughs> She's a mm-hmm. Belmont grad. and uh, I, I love Steve Winwood and his song, mm-hmm. you know, when you see a chance, take it. Uh, mm-hmm. And and what we're what we're doing now, and this is this is wasn't a deliberate strategy, but mm-hmm. here are these two. We already had art, but mm-hmm. now we have Homore and Watkins, and we're putting it all together, and we're going to start t- calling ourselves a really strong art universe. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, which yep. which we probably couldn't have done before that. Right. Well, and obviously complements your strength on the music side yeah. so well. So it's natural kind of fit, right? In the in the in the 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 culture of Nashville. Yes. Yeah. And, and the film the film program that's in mm-hmm. the Curb College combined with the film program from Watkins, and when you think of film, you think of art and music, and there, there's a real synergy there. And mm-hmm. uh, um, but and, and we think we can put all that together and be really good at that as well. And, and given all of those things, adding those in and then your, your new plans for the medical school, I was surprised that the, the, the growth target, you've had this unbelievable growth from, from under 3,000 to close to 9,000 students, but the target in the 2025 vision was only a little bit above that, I think, 9,200. And it sounds like with next fall, you may already be close to surpassing that. Was was there a sense that that you'd reached that critical mass and you didn't need to grow more? Or what was underlying that? Yeah, I think uh, a couple of things. Um, I, th- I think that uh, first of all, this past fall, I mean, this last year, and in fact, going all the way back to the previous spring, uh, right as we were getting ready to publish that, it, we were getting really cautionary because our enrollment went from eighty four hundred to eighty two hundred. We, we lost right. a couple hundred students for the first time in 21 years. And yeah. I hate to say that, but we're going to top it off this year with yeah. Yeah. God willing yeah. <laughs> with, with uh, some growth. Um, but um, so, so that, that influenced that target mm-hmm. a little, uh, but at, uh, also though, there is a scale that you can't, I don't know how you tell this to Ohio State or the University of Texas. Mm. You can't get bigger and bigger and bigger because <laughs> right. they, they keep doing this. But at what point is there a new strategy to consider? And and that's a, that that's perfect timing for my exit. <laughs> I mean, mm. that's part of what um, people ask me. Why did you retire? Well, one, I'm older than I look. Mm. Uh, and number two, uh, uh, I, I think I think I'm about done here. I, I, mm-hmm. When I talk about people ask what's next for Belmont, it's like it's a new leader with new ideas, mm-hmm. and I and I really mean that. 
I, I think that I can't wait to see what those ideas are. But I don't have a lot of ideas for the future. And plus, I just I love fishing, and I've not been fishing <laughs> three years. It's <laughs> great. And 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 as you're applying, you know, sort of Porter's you know, thinking about competitive advantage and, and all of the elements you've mentioned, you have a similar situation. So Chatham, we're walking distance from Pitt and CMU. So we have two really world-class universities on our doorstep. And and as you were thinking about this, particularly things like adding a medical school when Vanderbilt obviously has a, you know, already a world-class medical system, how were you thinking about, you know, Belmont's role and what you were trying to achieve with this very well-resourced competitor, you know, on your doorstep. Well, that's why we needed a partner like Hospital Corporation of America, uh, yeah. because they they can do it. And <clears throat> we've been so blessed that since that announcement last fall, we've uh, uh, convinced uh, Dr. Tommy <clears throat> Tommy Friss, one of the co-founders of HCA, uh, to become the namesake of our new medical college, to even tie us uh, tighter together. So, um, and I think the key is we're not competing with Vanderbilt. We, we don't, mm-hmm. we probably couldn't compete with Vanderbilt. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not competing with Mary. We, Meharry, uh, we couldn't compete with Meharry. Uh, we're going to be doing our own thing. And there's, mm-hmm. there's plenty for everyone. And, uh, you know, when I first came to town, uh, Two, two gentlemen called me and asked me to go to breakfast with them, and I did. And they were both members of Vanderbilt's Board of Trust. But they also cared about Nashville. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd been here a month, and I went to breakfast with, with Ken Roberts and Nelson Andrews. And they started telling me how badly Nashville needed another successful university, another mm-hmm. uh, really strong university. and how they wanted to see that happen. <laughs> and I just couldn't believe it. Like I'd never wow. been in a place where you didn't root against the other school, you know, and they were yep. encouraging us. And Gordon Gee was the chancellor at the time. And he and I became strange bedfellows, I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, uh, he, 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 he's just a remarkable person who uh, I, if, if he's in the room, I do not take my eyes off of him. Uh, he, he, but we remain friends. He's asked me to come mm-hmm. to West Virginia to for a visiting professorship next year. Oh, cool! But I told him uh, I don't think so, Gordon. If I wanted to work, I'd keep working here. Uh, I don't want to work. I'll come visit you, but no, yeah. nothing like that. Um, so, so I just think Nashville uh, is a place, and it's a big enough place that there's there's enough for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we don't have to beat somebody else to win, and mm-hmm. and we've uh, that's that's our thinking. And of course, in the medical field, uh, I, I've forgotten the numbers. It was in my proposal that I got gave to Sam Hazen, but mm-hmm. I never got to page six, where it's um, to the the number of physicians that are going to be needed in this country over the next twenty yeah. years is just phenomenal. And the medical current medical colleges need some help. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the unique opportunities you had in your final year as president was hosting the presidential debate. There were only two this time, and and obviously this was a very distinctive presidential election year. Can you tell us about uh, sort of what went into to getting that 
to host it and what the experience was like for you in the campus. Yeah, if uh, if last year wasn't hard enough on its own, uh, try hosting a presidential debate uh, um, in in such a tumultuous environment, uh, unpredictable environment. But uh, it's it's just been an amazing. It was an amazing experience. Uh, Belmont hosted in two thousand eight uh, the debate the town hall debate between Barack Obama and John McCain. And mm. at, at that time, uh, I was so impressed that the impact that that had on our self-concept as a university and, and the, the impact that it had on our national community. And so like, why is, Vander, why is it Vanderbilt doing this? Why is Belmont doing this? And well, Vanderbilt didn't apply or they probably would have been doing it, you know, uh, but we we just have high ambitions and audacious goals, and that's that's another uh, a, another thing that we focus on is let's uh, let's tell people our dreams and our visions, and, and they're going to walk away saying you're nuts, you can't. And, and darn it, we haven't. You know, it, it's just been so so satisfying. But going back to the debate, uh, it was. Uh, very, uh, HCA helped us with the health protocols and, and the Cleveland Clinic was also involved as a partner. Uh, we, uh, we had, you know, a couple other schools opted out and said, we can't do it. Uh, we said, we're going to do it. Uh, if the candidates show up, they, it was down to the day of the debate where we spent millions of dollars already before we found out both candidates are coming. I mean, wow, the day, yeah, the day, Amazing. because when it said, if you, if, if this candidate comes, uh, I need a plexiglass between us. And uh, that candidate said, I'm not going on stage if there's plexiglass. And then, and they were arguing about the muted mics. And, and we, we learned at 10 o'clock in the morning that president Trump was on the plane and he had tested negative for COVID, which meant, no plexiglass debates on, <sighs> you know. So, so when it was over, it was uh, a huge relief. Uh, but and I think the longer time goes by, the more proud I'm going to be the, of all our team and, the, and our folks that pull this off. John Carney, who headed the the debate team, but hundreds of our faculty and staff and others who were involved in making it happen. So. Uh, and, and as you can imagine, we got all kinds of, just like anything related in a COVID year, people over here saying you're you're nuts to even hold it. You can't hold it, or I, I don't like this candidate. You can't let them come on your campus. You, it's just if you do. And this is one of the quotes. If I if I end up writing anything, uh, if you do anything important, uh, you're going to get beat up. Mm-hmm. So just get ready for it. Uh, you, you mentioned, you know, doing this during a, a pandemic year. What other lessons have you taken away from from going back to March of 2019 in terms of 2020? Sorry, you know, it's it's all flown yeah. by. Um, in terms of, you know, are are there are there lessons, innovations, things that that you're going to be sustaining at Belmont as a result of this? Yeah, I, I was reminded first of all of, of how how remarkable our faculty and staff is. I mean, they just 
pivoted on a dime, and I'm sure yours did too, and I'm sure all over the country that happened. And and I think we need to celebrate uh, the academy and its resourcefulness and its its entrepreneurial spirit and its uh, sense of purpose, even in hard times. We're going to get this done, and it, and it, and it really unified us more than and divided us. And uh, um, and we learned a lot. Uh, I was, you know, went. Uh, I, I never once done what we're doing today. Yeah. Uh, and now I've done it hundreds of times, and been on Zoom and, and or other uh, Zencast or or other other uh, just this this sort of. Uh, mm-hmm. see, I, see, I'm still not conversant with the right language for what we're doing but um our faculty i think are going we we had been trying to sort of ease into more we we are a place where you come to learn uh, we didn't we're not a state park we wouldn't look good as a state park so we need students mm-hmm. to come here and learn together but we also need to use technology a lot more intensely than we were mm-hmm. before and i think we will be and uh I think we'll find a balance of uh, uh, learning in different ways. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know what that is. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I think our faculty will figure it out. I think we're all still <laughs> figuring out, yeah. figuring out as we go. Uh, the, the, this whole COVID experience has been one of, uh, I think, uh, living day to day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people want you to tell them what's going to happen three months from now. It, you, you just cannot. And, and it drives folks nuts. It drives parents nuts. It drives prospective students nuts. Are you going to require this? Are you going to require that? No, no. Mm-hmm. Let's see what the numbers are. So, so um, Chatham, we're, we're a relatively new member of the New American Colleges and Universities. You, you were talking earlier about Belmont, when you arrived, that at its core, its identity was as a liberal arts institution, but it had all of these professional degree programs, which have been a huge part of the expansion of the university while keeping that liberal arts core. And that really defines what the NACU colleges and universities share. What has that been like for you as as a sort of peer group and an organization in terms of of you know these last twenty years and 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 sort of your trajectory? Well, uh, Belmont was a charter member of NACU, CNU, and and uh, continues to embrace the principles. Uh, I think we're we may be the largest member now, uh, but but we still say. We have liberal arts at our core, and, and, and that serves all our professional programs. And uh, I think that's vital because I think the things that universe, that employers are looking for, even more than those technical skills that we teach in our professional programs, uh, is, are things like communication skills and problem solving and ethical behavior and things that are core to a liberal arts education. So... Uh, I, I think that 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 marriage is 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 the magic sauce. I think for mm-hmm. uh, higher education, uh, there there are, for example, uh, there's a software school here in, in Nashville that's really important and is turning out uh, people that can write software in three mm-hmm. months. And I, we need that. We need that. Mm-hmm. But I think what we're doing is something different than that. Mm-hmm. It's uh, 
much more time and takes much more time and more mm-hmm. breath. And yeah. uh, so I, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I read a book uh, in the year 2000 when I came here. Uh, Les White, the president of Arkansas State, said, Bob, read this book. And it was, the title is The Discoverers by Daniel Borston. And he was the mm-hmm. uh, head of the Congress, the Library of Congress, I think. And, mm-hmm. and uh, it is about, over the time, who are the people that discovered, not just geographically, but people that discovered um, in medicine and people that mm-hmm. discovered art and music. And, and it ties them all together. And it's beautiful historical tapestry that just, for the first time in my life, I, I realized, I mean, I loved history <laughs> when I read that. And, and I, didn't, I never hated history, but I, I just saw, I could see where we came from. And, and that kind of uh, reading experience is what we try to generate in our classes here. Um, not necessarily reading that book, book but through the, the respect for all the liberal arts. Mm-hmm. Could could you tell us a little about your two books? Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, the book you'd done on real dream teams and and how that came about and 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 some of the folks that you interviewed. And then I understand you wrote with your wife Judy, "Life is a Gift." And so I, I'd love if you would just share a little about those two. Well, uh, my friend Bo Thomas and I, and Bo Bo became a vice president here after I got here, our development person. We wrote a book on team leadership, and we. Uh, interviewed 12 pretty famous uh, or, or highly accomplished team leaders, everyone from uh, John Wooden, who uh, the coach from UCLA. I mean, imagine what a privilege it was to sit down. What a gentleman uh, John Wooden was. And uh, to interview him, Medal of Honor winners, winner uh, Patrick Henry Brady, uh, uh, Nobel Prize recipient Gertrude Elion, uh, Donald Peterson, who was the chairman of the, and CEO of Ford Motor Company at the time, and Lou Holtz, and all these people who had accomplished the lead pilot for the Thunderbird Slide Team, hmm. the teamwork that goes into all these things. Because team, and I, and I haven't talked much about teams, but teams are that's just assumed to me by me that that you got to have those principles woven into your leadership, and so uh, we. We had those did those interviews. We came up with a list of the characteristics of effective teams, just like uh, fifty other people did in their team books, mm-hmm. and they're the same principles <laughs> that you got to have a common mission and you got to be have cooperative behavior. Yeah. But what we brought to that list was some stories, uh, yeah. and pretty pretty remarkable stories <clears throat> about these leaders and and what they were able to accomplish. Mm-hmm. So so. You know, that book started, the genesis of that was what, what does it take to be a really effective team leader? And we mm-hmm. just went out and gathered information. And, mm-hmm. and, and then uh, we started, and we, by the way, we did other research, but uh, more academic research that involved interviews with about 300 other people. Uh, but then we, uh, life as a gift was uh, when Judy and I arrived here, uh, we were at a a point in our life, we're about 50, and we just said, okay, let's just do a life check. Are we on the right path? Uh, 
and you know, I wanted to start this book with a quote from Led Zeppelin, uh, but they they wouldn't give approval to it. But I can use it here. Uh, <laughs> yes, there are two paths from Stairway to Heaven. Yes, there are two paths that you can go by, but in the long run, there's still time to change the road you're on. And it makes me wonder. And we we were just wondering, okay, are we on the right path? And and we said, well, who do you talk to? To, to find out. And of course, you can go talk to your pastor and they'll tell you the right path. Or if your parents are living, they'll tell you the path. Or your kids, they'll sure tell you what. Mm-hmm. But we just thought, who who could tell you that? And what we came up with after a, a tour of the Alive Hospice uh, facility here in Nashville, let's talk to people who are in hospice, who are at the end of their life. They've signed a statement that says, my life is almost over. I want to stay here in this facility till I die. And and so, and we did find them in a very contemplative and reflective uh, mode when we sat down and talked to them. And we asked them a series of questions like, what's the, what's the most important thing you've ever done in your life? What do you regret? Uh, uh, and uh, the last question, if, if you had a message for the world, what would you tell them? If you, if you had a message you could tell the whole world, what would you tell them about how to live? And I, part of it was the impact that Tuesdays with Maury had on me years and years mm. ago when I read that 30 years ago, I guess, mm. where at the end, Maury Swartz says, why is it that we reach the end of our lives before we learn how to live? <laughs> you know, yeah. why? And so that's that was that was what we were thinking. and and. We interviewed 105 people, and most of these interviews were uh, over an hour long. Things I'm having to do right now as I move to a different offices is I have to figure out there's a big box of the transcripts of those interviews. I cannot throw that away. I cannot. It's sacred stuff. And so bought a new filing cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> but but the things that they told us uh, were, were just overwhelmingly, you know, uh, powerful and, and little Maddie. It, it, they range from a 102-year-old, I think, to Maddie, who was five. Oh, my God. And Maddie was, was dying of neurofibromentosis, which is a horrible disease where little tumors grow on the end of your nerves. Think about that. And, but the day I saw her and interviewed her, she was having a good day. And she was dressed like a fairy princess. And I asked her mother, why, why is she dressed? It's not Halloween. Why is she dressed like that? Mm-hmm. And she said, because she wanted to. And I thought, oh, yeah, what did Maury Swartz say? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. And, 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 but when I asked Maddie, um, what's, what's, uh, what would be, you can't, you can't ask Maddie those questions. Mm-hmm. I just said, what I said to her is, your life, if your life were a coloring, we're going to open up the first page of the coloring book. And there's a picture on that first page of you, Maddie. It's the happiest you've ever been in your life. Describe that picture to me. What's going on in that picture? Mm-hmm. And it's so, so amazing. She didn't hesitate. She said, what's well, a picture of me? And I'm sitting in my mommy's lap. And my dad's there. And my cat, Thomasina's there. And my brother Palmer's there, too. But he's not touching me. <laughs> <laughs> Her brother's not touching, and and 
and you realize, ask a 102-year-old, what, what's brought you the greatest joy in life? And she said, well, it's just having my family around. Mm-hmm. Well, ask a five-year-old and ask a 102-year-old. Mm. And, and they know what matters in life. They know what's important. But then, golly, we get so confused and lost and seeking joy in ways that it's just not to be found. And, and these people, yeah. they, they just over and over and over, they said joy is all around you every day. Mm-hmm. Um, you just have to look for it and, and accept it. Take it. And, 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 you know, those were the story, you know, from life as a gift. Uh, uh, I, I think I can tell this story. My son passed away about five years and uh, much too young, much, much too mm. young, amazing young guy. And, uh, um, and I, one of my friends called me to console me and he just said, uh, uh, I've got this book you need to read, Bob. And I said, okay. What is it? Mm. He said, well, you got a copy. I said, what <laughs> is it? And he says, this life is a gift. And I said, well, I got 80 copies of that book. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and, you know, I sat down and reread that book about what matters in life. And, and, and what, what about the next life? And it, was, it really was comforting to me to, to remember uh, what those people were thinking and, and to apply it to my own self. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I'd have to say, and the other part of that is writing this book with Judy. Um, she did most of the interviews. I didn't, I did a few by myself that she didn't feel comfortable. Like she mm-hmm. said, I just can't do it. Mm-hmm. Blah, blah. With Maddie, I, I can't. I'll grow. Yeah. And, yeah. and so, um, and like I'm a hard guy that doesn't care either, but it was hard for me. But yeah. but it was a joy to to do it as well to to, to realize what a remarkable little girl she was, and mm-hmm. and uh, but spending that time we we got to got it tra- the the recordings transcribed, and then every night uh, for for several months we we would mm-hmm. come together in the evening and spend a couple hours reading mm-hmm. through trying to sort out. What are the themes? What what are the common yeah. threads? What's the message that all these people are? Where are they mm-hmm. saying the same thing? And uh, doing that with your spouse, you talk about a bonding experience. So let's spend two hours every night talking about what matters in life, <laughs> and, and boy, everything else just melts away. It just does. Yeah. So, so with that perspective, on terms of what matters, when you look back on your 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 two decades at, at Belmont and the tremendous success you had, what are the things that that are most meaningful that you're most proud of from that experience? I'm most proud of those moments where uh, students say hello, Doctor Fisher. Now they got in this habit of calling me Bob, and we had to. I had to work on that. I didn't get very far. They, they still do it, and it's okay now. But I probably yeah. need to show some respect to the present dudes. Uh, and they say, "Well, don't call me dude." Then. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, but I'm telling you, I, yeah. if if you don't love these kids, uh, mm. it's a chore. But if you mm. love them, it's a joy, and I love them, and and I'm just. Uh, had such a privilege to see their lives enhanced by their experience in Belmont, by our faculty and our staff and their hard work every day. And, 
it, it's the I've told people, you know, the, the thing I'm going to miss, I know, is, is the selfies with the students. Mm. They, Can I get my picture taken with you, Dr. Fisher? Oh, okay. Uh, I'll say $5. And they'll say, oh, I, I said, no, I pay you $5. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> and, uh, but I just, I just love, love that. And, and, and I think all of us in higher ed, if, if, mm. you know, it's just like, you gotta love the kids. You got to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if if you think about what was it that uh, you've already touched on several things that obviously you've used a great deal in your presidency. The background from microeconomics and business, having had a chance to to interview some wonderful team leaders for for your book. Are are there other experiences that you think had have prepared you for this role to to be successful? Yeah. Um, as a business school guy in uh, management and economics, I did quite a bit of consulting over the years. When I say quite a bit, you know, uh, it was during vacation times and those sorts of things. I got an opportunity to work with some really outstanding leaders. I mean, Don Tyson from Tyson Foods, uh, Dr. Bo Thomas and I uh, helped facilitate their strategy process for about seven or eight years, you know, so we, hmm. we spent a lot of time with Tyson Foods and with uh, several other Arkansas, Louisiana Gas and several other companies. And, and those leaders, uh, I had a chance to sit in the room with them and to watch them work. And, and they were also different. They, they were just different. Uh, and and Don Tyson had this style, but Mill Tony at Arkansas Gas I, maybe the smartest person I've ever been around in the Harvard MBA who was able to just dissect uh, data and, uh, and, 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 and be tough and be, be relentless. And, but I, I could just go down the list or Paul Whitley, who, who just loved everybody. If you needed a hug, he'd hug you. So those kinds of people. And I, and what I learned is I need all that. I need to have mm-hmm. some of all that, and I need to look at where I'm not as good and, and work on that. And, and and there really are times where I would have and will probably in the future ask myself, uh, what I need here, is it is it Miltoni or is it Don Tyson or is it, uh, or is it this other leader? And, and then do it, you know, uh, do what you have to do. Obviously, you know, huge and, and varied successes over this time. What was the greatest challenge you faced during your tenure, and, and how did you approach that? Um, we're a faith-based institution, uh, and my personal faith is vital to my existence and guides me and uh, gives me, uh, is the basis of my ethical, the times when I'm, when I, when I'm at my best. <laughs> I'm, I'm exhibiting my faith, and um, and that's complicated in the world. It just is. Uh, we we have students of every faith uh, that I you can imagine, and of maybe no faith on this campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, what we try to do is just create an environment that demonstrates our faith. Those of us who work mm-hmm. here, uh, but it's it's hard to uh, it's, it's hard to align that with today's. Uh, mindset that 
everything has to be all inclusive all the time and mm-hmm. everything, anything's okay. And anything goes, uh, Belmont has always been before I got here, a place that welcomes everybody. It's a very uh, friendly environment for the LGBTQ community, but yet there, there are people who, we, we were affiliated with the Tennessee Baptists, which that affiliation ended during my tenure in 2007. That was hard because yeah. it was, uh, and that was one of the reasons I didn't initially want to come to Belmont. I knew that yeah. had to happen if it really wanted to be successful. Yeah. Uh, but so, so there's a lot of people who, who would criticize our friendliness. And I, you just cannot win. <laughs> If you stand by your yeah. and ethical beliefs are not as simple as people try to make them, uh, at least mine mm-hmm. aren't simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was driving through uh, my, you know, my home's Arkansas. I guess it always will be, even though I'm, I love Nashville. I'm staying in Nashville, but we were driving through the uh, countryside uh, a few weeks ago uh, in just out outside of Kingston, Arkansas headwaters of the Buffalo Wilderness area. I saw a sign that said, uh, just love everybody. I'll sort out the rest later. Sign, God. <laughs> just love everybody. Yeah. And that's what we do. And and, and that's, that's so easy, yet it's so complicated. And, uh, yeah. uh, and then leave the rest to God. Yeah. Um, you've touched on elements of it already, but I'm curious, how did you decide it was the right time for you to step down and, and what besides fishing are you thinking about for, for this next stage of your life? Well, I, I, I had, you know, a list of things to do and, uh, and and I I probably could come up with another list now if I needed to, but I had this list of sort of imperatives that I felt that's what I was supposed to do while I was here. And, and we've gotten it done. You know, we've accomplished so much of that. And uh, I, I just simply, uh, all, all the regular reasons, I just returned from Long Island uh, out on the North Fork with my daughter and son-in-law and my grandson and the only granddaughter who, who you don't have to know her name. It's just the princess. She's the princess. Mm-hmm. I have six grandsons and one granddaughter. And and we've, we've just seen them for the first time in a year and a half and uh, yeah. ho- almost two years, well, a year and a half. And uh, that's just, that's just not consistent with what I told you about life as a gift. I don't think mm. if family really matters that much, mm. you got to find ways to spend more time with them. And uh, we, fortunately, our other daughter lives here in, the Nashville area, the one with five boys, she and her husband, uh, she would quickly point out to adopt. Uh, and uh, the, she, uh, uh, we, we see them every Sunday. So that's, a, that's okay. just, just a special gift. And, but um, there are things, I still have a farm in Arkansas and I need to get over there to take care of some bluebird houses that need repair. And I need to mow the fields and I need to, uh, you know, just check on how the trees are growing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, but, uh, but I do think uh, I, I, 
what's next for me is, is a, has been a deliberate, uh, and it's a genuine, I don't know. Uh, right. I, I, Belmont has been so good to me, and, and uh, uh, I've been offered, uh, I'm on a year-long sabbatical, and I've been offered the opportunity to be the president emeritus and make that a, you know, a job, I guess, mm-hmm. but a part-time job, and mm-hmm. we'll have to make up what it looks like. Uh, Dr. Jones' leadership, I, I need to get him to help me understand how I can be supportive through that. And certainly mm-hmm. I look forward to doing that uh, if I, if I do that, but I've mm-hmm. delivered, you know, that year long sabbatical thing at the end is such a gift and uh, uh, I'm going to use it to just look around. Uh, you know, I've always told our incoming students or any recruits we're trying to encourage to come to Belmont that, Here's what we believe about you. We believe God mm-hmm. created you for a purpose uh, and that there's one thing you ought to do in life. And if you can figure that out, it, it'll bring you great joy. And we also believe God wouldn't create you to do something and then not give you the ability to do it. We believe you have right now in the form of potential inside you, the, the uh, gifts and the talents and the heart to do what you're supposed to do in life. And, uh, but there's one more thing you need to understand. We can't tell you what your purpose is and, and your gifts and talents. You've got to discover those. But we can tell you what your purpose is not about. And it's not about you. And you can just hear the room. You can hear how quiet it is when it's not about you. That's not what you put in commercials these days for kids. Right. But it's about who were you created to serve? Who can you serve? And, and you've got to find a way to link your, your purpose with service to other people. It, whether you want to be a lawyer, accountant, or doctor, you're going to serve. And I always quote Bob Dylan's song, you're going to serve somebody. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's what I've got to figure out now. Again, mm-hmm. I, I had it up. Maybe I'll teach. I don't know, but maybe there's something I can do in the community that's different. Uh, but, I want to serve somebody. I know I won't be happy if I'm not doing that. So I want to figure that how to do it. But I do want it to allow me fishing time and family time. I hear you. Final question, Bob. I'm curious as you look back and you think about advice for folks who are thinking of becoming or have just become a college or university president in this times we're living in, which is, we know, not the easiest time to be taken on that role. And any pieces of advice you have in terms of what, what they should be thinking about to be successful? I had a little, uh, well, first of all, I, I think they need to understand the challenges of it. I think they need to know it's hard. It's really hard. I've, I've been smiling a lot in this interview, but it's not smiles every day. It's, it's some hard stuff and it's, it's leading the community where people get sick, you know, people hurt themselves, people, you know, it's hard. Uh, it's hard to make things work financially. It's, you could worry all the time in this job. So you need to check yourself and say, can I, Am I the type of person that can live with some pain? Because it's coming. 
it'll come. Uh, but then, you know, check yourself too, though. Do I really love these students enough that it's worth it to me? Um, and then the things that I would encourage the most uh, is whatever your background, it doesn't have to be microeconomics. You can figure out what it is that you need to do to make a university financially sustainable. You can figure out what it is that you need to do uh, uh, to support the faculty and the staff. Um, but what you what you got to ask yourself is, can you be relentless in that commitment to that to that strategy, to that focus, to that uh, effort? And because that's what will make you. I just believe that that's what will make the difference is is not giving up, pressing on, press just, on, just keep going. Great. Well, Bob, thank you so much for taking the time to share your wisdom and experience. It's been a great joy to to be able to speak with you, and and I hope if uh, your sabbatical travels uh, should bring you our way that you'll come see us in Pittsburgh. Well, thank, thank you. If I if I get up to see Gordon Gee, I won't be far from you. So absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, not, well, not far for, at all. Thank you for this opportunity. Oh, no, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you.